invite you to turn in your copy of Scripture to our sermon text this morning, which is Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. For those of you who are visiting with us this morning, we are in the series through uh, Paul's epistle to the Philippians. And we are at this passage this morning in which Paul assures us of God's uh, sovereign authority uh, over all things, even over, as we'll see, um, the wicked empires of this world, uh, and even over the mixed motives of of those who would uh, preach uh, the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Let us now consider this as we read the text before us. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. We know that uh, our world is obsessed with power, and it's obsessed with influence. We see this demonstrated, especially with all the attention on our upcoming uh, midterm elections. The news cycle is full of these questions of, you know, who will end up with the authority? Which political power will, will, uh, which political party will end up with uh, the political power? Who will have the ultimate majority. We know that our desire for power and for authority is you know, a desire to have our own way. It stems from a desire for us to have things as we uh, want them, as we think uh, they are uh, best done. You know, this stems all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden, does it not? As they themselves rejected God's authority and they sought to have things their own way to have things just as they desired. What we uh, need to understand, loved ones, as we consider the power plays in our world, what we need to understand is that the Lord Jesus is the only one who has been given all power and all authority. This is the truth that the scriptures continually drive home to you and to me. He alone has all power and all authority. We see this demonstrated so clearly in what is known as the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. There, during his ascension to the right hand of the Father, Jesus spoke to the disciples and he assured them, saying, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then the commission Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, 
teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We see that this great commission Jesus gives to his disciples to go into all the world, it's sandwiched between two important assurances. The first is that Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and on earth over all creation. And second, that he will be with us. He will be with us believers until he returns in glory as his, at his second advent. He has not left us alone. And so we see that with these two promises in hand, that Jesus has been given all authority and that he is with us always, with these two promises in hand, the disciples were to go into all the world preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And loved ones, this commission and these assurances are still in place. These twin promises are still in place. Nothing has changed over the last 2,000 years. You know, this is the overall tone of Paul's letter to the Philippians. It's this tone of assurance. It's a tone of confidence in Christ and in his gospel. I want us to remember this morning that Paul was writing this letter from prison. He was in prison because of his faithful preaching and his witness to Jesus Christ. And yet we see that throughout the letter, despite his circumstances and the opposition that he was facing, we see that Paul remained confident and he remained sure. That though the church of Jesus Christ was and it remains under attack from the world, from the flesh and the devil, we see in Paul's teaching and in his tone a calm assurance. He has this wonderful assurance that these enemies of God will not have the final say. Again, Christ alone has all power and authority. We see this in verse 12 of our text. Paul writes, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. You know, as we read that verse, we need to keep in mind Again, this was a personal letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi. He knew the people of this church, and they knew him. And you can imagine, you can imagine that when they heard that, that Paul was in prison for preaching the gospel, you know, they became concerned for their beloved apostle, for their friend Paul. Imagine... This morning, if you uh, received word that one of your closest friends was on a mission trip or perhaps even on a vacation in a foreign country, and he was imprisoned because of his faith. He was found out to be a Christian. He was accused of proselytizing, and he was imprisoned for his faith. How would you, how would you feel when you heard that news? You, know, you and I would surely asked the same questions that the Philippians no doubt asked about Paul. What were Paul's conditions in prison? Is he okay? Is he all right? Is he relatively safe? Does he have enough food? Right? Uh, is his life in danger? They were so concerned about Paul, in fact, that we know that they sent 
Epaphroditus to visit Paul and to bring him supplies to give him some relief. Those who were imprisoned in the ancient world, they depended on the care of loved ones and of friends because they weren't given the supplies that they needed in prison, um, like prisoners are treated today. So this church sent Epaphroditus with, with a love gift. And the question that no doubt circulated in their minds also that this letter addresses is, what about the gospel? They were concerned for Paul, but they were also concerned about the gospel. Did Paul's imprisonment bring it all to an end? Did this mean that Rome had won? That Christ would no longer be preached because Paul was in prison, he was in chains. Loved ones, this is why, this is why verse 12 is so surprising. It was so surprising then, and it is so surprising now as Paul writes again, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. We really need to dwell on what Paul is saying here. He is saying that my imprisonment has actually helped to spread the good news of Jesus Christ instead of stifling it and suppressing it as Rome uh, wanted to happen. Paul is pointing out that by God's mysterious providence, the Roman government's attempts to silence him and the gospel is actually working to spread it. You know, when we use this word gospel, what Paul is referring to is the message of Jesus Christ. He's referring to the preaching of Jesus Christ. He summarizes the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, where he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. This is the gospel that Paul says is not actually being suppressed, but is actually going forward, is advancing despite my chains. So we see in our text the overarching, the main point in verses 12 through 18 of Philippians chapter 1 is that our all-powerful and sovereign Lord turns even prison, and as we'll see, even the bad motives of some preachers He turns these things into the advancement, the progress of the gospel into all the world. He is able to use these things for his glory. We see first in our text, the gospel advances even when opposed. See this in verse 12, as Paul shows two ways in which the gospel advances even when it is opposed. We read in verses 12 through 13, Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. He explains here first, so that it has become known throughout the the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. What Paul is speaking about there when he refers to the imperial guard is he's referring to the Praetorian Guard. It's consisted of 9,000 soldiers in the Roman army who were assigned special duties. And among these duties was that they were chained 
to prisoners in order to prevent their escape. And history records that these soldiers would work in six-hour shifts. And so you you can imagine, as Paul's imprisonment began, uh, that here were these soldiers. Here were these soldiers thinking that Paul was stuck with them, that Paul was imprisoned with them, when, by God's providence, they were actually stuck with Paul. Paul had a captive audience six hours at a time. Now, you know, we're not told specifically in this text that he spoke directly to these soldiers about Christ, but you and I know Paul. We know that he couldn't keep quiet about Jesus. He was so vocal about Christ, and so it's not hard to imagine Paul telling each soldier the good news of the gospel, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Right? So you can imagine Paul, can you not? There every six hours, as those shackles were being put on again by a different soldier, and Paul praying, Lord, thank you for yet another captive audience. See, loved ones, this is the great irony. This is the great irony that in God's providence, rather than suppressing the gospel and preventing its spread, Paul's imprisonment actually brought the gospel to the very heart of secular political power in Rome. That Caesar was, in essence, ushering Paul into his very palace, into his, the very heart of his government, so that Paul, unbeknownst to Caesar and unbeknownst to the rest of Rome, might there preach the gospel and have a captive audience. And so we see that Paul writes, and he assures the Philippians <clears throat> that though he is imprisoned, see that though he is in chains, the gospel is not in chains. The gospel is not hindered. It, it's actually, he says, it's advancing. Says wonderfully, it's advancing amongst the elites, it's advancing amongst the powerful, the influential in Rome. And how is it doing this? Paul says it is all by our Lord's power and authority. So, you know, we don't know how many soldiers were converted in this time, but we know that some were. In fact, Paul will later write in chapter 4, verses 21 through 22 of Philippians, as he closes off the letter. He writes and says, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Who are those in Caesar's household? Probably not referring to the Roman emperor's family members, Paul is most likely referring to the servants and those soldiers who were in Caesar's administration. See, the apostle Paul says, there are saints even among Caesar's household, among the elites, among those who are considered the powerful in our society. You know, I like to imagine that at this point in the letter, the Philippian jailer, 
who was perhaps in the church at this time, a Philippian jailer who we know was converted under Paul and, and Silas's uh, preaching and, and teaching and, and that great event that happened in uh, the jail cell, that he was there in the church and as he heard about conversion of soldiers and many in Caesar's household, perhaps smiled as he recalled the time that his heart was once turned from stone to flesh and how he and his whole household were baptized, how the Lord, by his power and his authority, we know from, about the Philippian jailer, invaded, invaded not just the prison that he was working in, but invaded his own heart, bringing about regeneration and saving faith. Loved ones, we need to consider this morning, we need to consider that the Lord has given each of us a captive audience. You know, we, we don't need to wait until we're chained to a prison guard in order to share the gospel. Our captive audience is among our neighbors, among our family members, and among our friends. And we need to keep in mind, loved ones, that God has placed us in our respective fears of influence for a reason. One of the best demonstrations of this is found in the book of Esther. The book of Esther where we read about Esther's rise and influence over the king by God's sovereign power. And we know in the book of Esther there comes a time when she is forced to make a choice. When it is discovered that powerful forces are plotting to kill the Jews, it's Esther's cousin Mordecai who urges Esther to use her political connections, to use her rank and her influence in the palace in order to save her people. We read in Esther chapter 4, verses 13 through 14, Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Loved ones, I ask you the same question. Where has God placed you at this point? And how can you be a witness in that place where he has has placed you? You know what we need to do is we need to be open. We need to have this on our radar. Like the Apostle Paul who thought when he was imprisoned next to those soldiers, he didn't think this was the end, but he saw this as yet another opportunity for the gospel to advance, for the gospel to go forward. Let us have this on our radar, loved ones. Let us consider the many opportunities that God gives us so often, so frequently. And one example is you're on a flight, right? you're on a flight, I want to encourage you, don't be too quick to put on those headphones, those soundproof headphones, and just block out the rest of the world and block out those two people sitting next to you. I want you to consider that you have a captive audience right there. Take out your Bible. Welcome, perhaps, the opportunity for a discussion with your seatmate. Consider the fact that they are stuck next to you 
just like those soldiers were stuck with Paul, right? And if they get up, the captain will tell them to sit back down and to buckle back up. They are stuck there. They are your captive audience. They're my captive audience. There are so many opportunities that we have, loved ones, that the gospel might advance through our words and even through our deeds. May we be eager to see the divine appointments that God brings into our lives. So Paul now continues on and points to a second way that the gospel was advancing. He says that it was advancing uh, not only through his witness in the halls of power and among the influential in Rome, but he says it is going forth by the boldness of believers who heard about his imprisonment. We read in verse 14, Paul says, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Again, loved ones, consider the great irony. Rome's expectation was by arresting and persecuting Christians, they would ultimately suppress and ultimately stop the spread of Christianity. Yet the Apostle Paul points out that the greater the persecution, the greater was the response of faithful Christian, the Christians, the greater was the boldness amongst the confessing Christians. That what was meant for evil, God used for the good of his church, and we see for the glory of his name. That our sovereign Lord, who has all power and our all authority, we see, was behind it all. And loved ones, we need to have this same confidence in our Lord and in his gospel in the word of the Lord Jesus. Jesus assured us in the scriptures that he will build his church. He assures us of this. And that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That no no communist government, no Islamic threats, no schemes of man, no schemes of Satan, we read in scripture, will be victorious over his church will be able to suppress his gospel. That even though we may suffer for our faith, as Paul was surely suffering in that prison, and as Christians have suffered over the centuries for the faith, and they continue to suffer, and we need to keep them in our prayers, loved ones, we must see that our Lord's power and authority is the ultimate source through it all. That he will be victorious, that his church cannot be stopped. Consider the great intellectual assaults that have been made against our Christian faith ever since the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment was um, it was an intellectual mu- movement in Europe that uh, emphasized uh, reason, and it emphasized individualism over the traditional view of of God and and man's relationship to God. The Enlightenment sought to tear that all down and to set up man as his own autonomous uh, being. Uh, One of the most popular Enlightenment thinkers was the French atheist Voltaire. Uh, He was widely read during his lifetime, and he was really famous during his lifetime for his written attacks on the Christian faith. 
Uh, and he wrote that in 50 years from this time, uh, and he was writing this during the mid-1700s, this is almost 300 years ago, he wrote that in 50 years from his time that no one would remember Christianity. He said, in 20 years, Christianity will be no more. He said, my single hand shall destroy the edifice that it took 12 apostles to build. We know that 20 years passed and Christianity remained. And Voltaire has passed and Christianity remains. In fact, uh, after he passed away, the house from which he assaulted the Christian church and from which he assaulted Christ with his pen, that house became the headquarters of the Geneva Bible Society, from which the church was mass-producing Bibles and distributing them throughout all of Europe and throughout the world. Loved ones, the great irony of God. He has ultimate power and authority. You know, we have our own Voltaires of today, do we not? One of them is Bill Nye, the science guy, who I grew up watching. Uh, You know, he is an outspoken uh, atheist, uh, just an outspoken opponent of Christianity. Uh, In fact, in 2014, Bill Nye was on a morning show in Toronto, and he predicted that the people, uh, that people would reject evolution, or the people who reject evolution is the way he phrased it, are going to die out within the next two decades. This is his prediction. He said, in another 20 years, those guys will just about be out of business. He's talking about creationists. He's talking about you and me, people that believe that God created the heavens and the earth. Loved ones, in light of such predictions from Voltaire, from Bill Nye, you know, we need to keep in our hearts and in our minds the words of the Lord Jesus. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. See that though the church may seem weak and the preaching of the gospel may seem foolish in the eyes of the world and people scoff and laugh at our faith, the scriptures assure us that the the foolishness of God has always proven stronger than man's strength. It's always been the case. It was by the foolishness of God that Joseph was sold as a slave in Egypt, and rose to power so that he might protect his people from a worldwide famine. God used Joseph in that way. God also used the foolishness of Moses, right? A stammering, stuttering sinner to do what? To overcome Pharaoh and his whole army. God used the shouts of his people to bring down the seemingly impenetrable walls of Jericho. And loved ones, there are so many examples of how the seeming foolishness of God overcame the seeming strength of man. The gospel advanced. Despite oppression and opposition, it went forth in strength. But the prime example of this is of our Lord Jesus Christ, is it not? That our dying Lord was a man upon a cross, a man who looked so weak, 
and so defeated in the eyes of the world, we know that he was really a display of the majesty, of the glory, and of the power of God. Richard Phillips writes, he says, And so it was when Jesus Christ took up the cross and embraced to his own breast the very death our sins deserved. There, Satan bruised his heel as God put it in the promise that foretold the great conflict that is told in uh, all the Bible. But, we read, Jesus crushed his head by conquering death through his inconquerable life, by overthrowing Satan's rule like a strong man who breaks into a house to set the captives free, by dying in the place of sinners so that we might be freed forever from the guilt of sin and delivered from its power by the working of the Holy Spirit that Jesus sends into our lives. See, the foolishness of the gospel has always proven stronger than man's strength. So the gospel advances even when opposed. Secondly, we read that the gospel advances even when preached by believers with mixed motives, even when preached by believers with mixed motives. And we read there in verses 15 through 18, as Paul describes some preachers who were going about proclaiming the gospel, but they were doing so out of envy and rivalry. They had a selfish ambition in their preaching. It probably stemmed from the fact that they resented Paul's popularity. They resented the honor that many were giving to Paul, and they sought to have honor for themselves, just like Paul, and perhaps even to have greater honor than Paul. So we need to understand as we consider what Paul says in verses 15 through 18, that what Paul was describing here was not false teachers. They were, we read in verse 15, they were preaching Christ. Um, And this is important to note because when Paul dealt with false teachers, he was very severe with false teachers. We read in Galatians chapter 1, uh, verses 6 through 8, where Paul speaks to um, uh, the church in, in Galatia, and he really points out how much he hates those who were preaching a false gospel, how much he hates the fact that they are distorting the truth of God. It says in Galatians chapter 1, beginning at verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and who want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, Paul says, let him be accursed. This is Paul's tone in Galatians, where a false gospel was being preached. But we see that this is not Paul's tone in Philippians. So we see in Philippians that Paul is not rejoicing in false teaching, just like we cannot rejoice in false teaching. You and I must not rejoice in Mormonism, Mormonism which teaches a different way of salvation. We can't rejoice in universalism, which teaches that faith in Christ is not necessary for salvation. We can't rejoice in these things, these false teachings, 
that either we know add from the gospel or take away from the gospel to the degree that, that the truth of the gospel is ultimately lost. So as we look at Philippians, we ask, what then is Paul rejoicing in? He is rejoicing, we see, in the fact that even though these preachers were preaching with wrong motives, they were preaching for their own glory and not God's, God, again, in his sovereign power, was using their preaching to make Christ known, was using their preaching to draw people to Christ. See that God is able to make people with wrong motives, with perverse motives, ultimately serve his ends. Loved ones, consider our context today. There are so many pastors, so many churches and ministries today that we know uh, seek their own glory rather than Christ's. And yet we know also that they are in many ways preaching Christ. And people are getting saved under their ministries. And so we can rejoice that despite their sinful motives, Christ is being preached, and and people are coming to faith. You know, at at Grace, at our church, we have reformed distinctives. We hold very tightly to them, but we need to understand, loved ones, that God has his people in every true church of Jesus Christ, that despite the mixed motives of televangelists, uh, of celebrity pastors, and, and of many in the ministry who are motivated by selfish ambition in their preaching of the gospel, we can rejoice that God is able to use even such perverse motives, such selfish motives, how? As a means to attain his ends. So, loved ones, I want to ask you this morning, how are you and how am I living to advance the gospel? I want to encourage you by underlining the fact that Living for the gospel, for the advancement of the gospel, does not mean uh, needing to be an international uh, missionary. It does not mean needing to be imprisoned for Christ in order that you might then begin your uh, seeking to advance the gospel in this world. But if you are a mom and you are faithfully praying with your children, and catechizing your children and teaching them about the faith and modeling the faith before them, you are living to advance the gospel. If you are a Sunday school teacher and you are teaching the church's children every Sunday, looking into their eyes and telling them about the Lord Jesus Christ, you are living to advance the gospel. If you are a student on your campus who seeks to honor God by studying hard, being an example in class, and when you are given the opportunity to perhaps talk to friends and those near you about your faith, you are living to advance the gospel, not needing to go to international territory, but right there, that sphere of influence, that captive audience that the Lord has given you and that the Lord has given me. We do all these things, loved ones, so that we might say with Paul, Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, we must rejoice. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. That Christ died for our sins. 
that he was buried, and that on the third day he rose again, that he is seated at your right hand, and there he has been given all authority and all power. Lord, we pray that you would comfort us by this word of assurance, and that you would also embolden us, that you have, we know, placed us in spheres of influence, in places of authority, in places of influence. Lord, grant us to be good stewards of where you have placed us, that we might seek to advance the gospel by all the means that you have granted us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.